This is a special edition of the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nelder, recorded in December 2016 at RMI's eLab Annual Summit in Austin, Texas. American coal, nuclear energy, natural gas, hydro, solar power, wind turbines. We're becoming a monumental exporter of natural gas. This boom in the United States is not a bubble that's going away. The oil's still there. I'd rather pump it from another country and save ours, and then when the rest of the world runs out, hey, guess what? We can yeah. still turn on our lights. We've run into a problem where we have constraints, where there are limits now. The new phase we're going into related to the exhaustion of these resources, there's no replacement. This is a one-shot affair, and we're unprepared for it. Really, we do not have very much more time to get a handle on this problem. It's better to get to a renewable future, a sustainable future, sooner rather than later. Get there before we do the environmental damage, not after. Welcome to the Energy Transition Show. I'm your host, Chris Nelder. This is a special free bonus episode of the Energy Transition Show, brought to you in collaboration with Rocky Mountain Institute, or RMI, a clean energy think-and-do tank based in Colorado. One of RMI's initiatives is its Electricity Innovation Lab, or ELAB, an assembly of thought leaders and decision makers from across the U.S. electricity sector. ELAB focuses on collaborative innovation to address critical institutional, regulatory, business, economic, and technical barriers to economic deployment of distributed resources in the U.S. electricity sector. This is one of seven interviews I recorded with electricity sector experts in December 2016 in Austin, Texas, at the ELAB Annual Summit. The summit is a convening of electricity industry stakeholders, including state, federal, and local governments, utilities, regulatory agencies, renewables and DER companies, financiers, advocates, customers, and philanthropists that aims to advance the electricity system transformation toward a cleaner, more distributed, and more resilient grid for the 21st century and beyond. I'd like to thank RMI and ELAB for hosting this wonderful event in Austin and for inviting the Energy Transition Show to cover the event, which offered a unique opportunity to connect with these leaders in the electricity industry. So, on with the show. Our guest in this interview is Lorraine Akiba, a commissioner with the Hawaii Public Utilities Commission. Welcome, Lorraine, to the Energy Transition Show. Thank you. Aloha, Chris. Aloha. All right. So Hawaii has been rather famously at the forefront of integrating solar onto its grid, getting fairly high-profile news coverage as net-metered rooftop solar there grew from pretty negligible levels five years ago to about 15% of customers having it today, the highest amount of rooftop solar on a per capita basis in the nation. That is correct. We lead the nation in terms of per capita solar and also rooftop distributed energy on the grid, rooftop PV. So Hawaii had to deal with the hard work of solar integration more quickly and at a higher level than any other state, which naturally put it in the spotlight. So if I'm remembering the history here correctly, first the amount of net metered solar grew pretty rapidly against some resistance from HECO, the utility, and then the PUC put a halt to new interconnections for rooftop solar systems under the net metering program until a transition to a market-based structure could be figured out. Then interconnection applications were reopened under two new tariffs with minimum monthly bills. Then the PUC set some limits to how much rooftop solar could be connected to HECO. And then it established a program where rooftop solar customers could still interconnect if they also had some of their own battery storage and modern inverters that could actually prevent excess power from feeding back onto the grid in order to protect the grid equipment from overload conditions and balancing problems. (sighs) 
Is that about it? <laughs> well, not quite correct in terms of the limiting of the options. I think our DER docket, which is still ongoing, and uh, we're going into phase two of the DER docket, is trying to address the interconnection issues because we do feel that rooftop PV can be the virtual power plant. Here we are at the uh, RMI Summit, and the Amory Levins has given us that concept. But the virtual power plant to be able to use the two-way inverters that exist in, especially the newer systems, to provide ancillary services, reactive power to help support the grid and help balance and be a grid asset so customers can be an active part of providing ancillary services to the grid through rooftop PV systems. And those systems have their own energy management systems, and they can hopefully be paired with demand response energy management systems, demand side management systems from the utility. So what happens at the distribution level can clearly help what goes on in the transmission level. And because we have small island grids, we are the living laboratory for that. But as far as from the regulatory perspective, as you did correctly mention, we had circuits that were at 250% of minimum daily load, and that is just incredible. We didn't even know we could do that much, but the Hawaiian Electric uh, Utilities, in partnership actually with SolarCity and NREL, were able to do circuit studies to see that at that point was the maximum load. They were, really until then, they didn't really have an accurate measurement of exactly how much on certain circuits. They just knew that there were challenges being caused by the amount of distributed rooftop PV on those circuits. And nobody else is there yet. Not California, not Arizona, not Nevada, not anywhere else where the issue of distributed generation has come up in a regulatory proceeding. So basically what we did was we, we allowed for customers still to have choice. So there is still customer grid supply under the DER docket order because the subscriptions under that um, option filled up pretty fast that they are reaching some of those limits there. But what we also gave to the customers was customer self-supply so that people could still have rooftop PV and self-generate so long as they didn't export into the grid and create you know interconnection challenges. And then there was the third option, which was customer self-supply with storage. So it didn't require storage, but if you had storage, you might be able to um, uh, be advanced in the interconnection connection queue, you would also be able to participate in demand response credits, which is another open docket. We have an integrated demand response portfolio docket where the utility is trying to create uh, programs and trying to implement in an integrated way, a lot of the prior pilots and a lot of the prior ideas that had been tested to use um, demand response, to use DERM, you know, Demand Energy Response Management Systems, DERMs, work with third-party demand response aggregators to use their information systems and energy management systems to help provide, again, ancillary services. And that's, you know, capacity, fast response, frequency response, regulating reserves, things that you would never think distributed energy resources could provide. Yeah. So I think it's a great opportunity. And there's just, you know, customer self-supply if you don't want to provide storage. We did this to align a lot of that with our time of use rates because we're trying to incent customers to shift load voluntarily to meet the new overgeneration um, midday, which is where we have the, the Nessie curve or the duck curve, as people in California <laughs> refer to it. But basically from about 9 or 10 in the morning to about 2 or 3 in the afternoon, there's a lot of overgeneration of solar if it's a robust solar day. And Therefore, then there's not that much load because people aren't at home. They're not doing their cooking, bathing, and right. whatever nighttime activities, entertaining, and you know, turn the TV on, turn the computer on, whatever causes the peak to happen. So what we're trying to do is for those customers that can shift load to the daytime, there's a time of use rate that incentivizes that, which is a very reasonable rate. And then there's the peak rate that starts at 5 and goes till about 
10 o'clock, 9 o'clock, and then there's the, the non-peak, off-peak rate, which is from 10 to 8 or so in the morning or early in the morning, which again is when we curtail wind, and people forget that we have a lot of very good resources in Hawaii, not just solar, but wind, you know, renewables, and and we had geothermal, we have many, many other natural resources that we're blessed with for renewable energy, but wind is being curtailed as well because of the lack of load. So mm. again, trying to incent customers through time of use rates for bill credits to be able to shift load voluntarily. So it's a, a market-driven incentive, and hopefully in combination with our other dockets, which I, I do want to give a shout out because it is a great effort that's being done, again, with community stakeholders and technical working groups and a lot of input from the community members and the parties that are involved in our energy ecosystem, but the community-based renewable energy tariff, which was a creation of statute by statute, but it's basically our community solar, community wind, and potentially community storage program effort to get that tariff established again so people that don't have access to rooftop PV... And that's a lot of folks in Hawaii, a lot of renters, a lot of multifamily dwelling folks, a lot of low-income folks that don't have rooftop PV. And it it isn't even low-income because we have a lot of condominiums. We're quite an urban center where we have high-rise buildings where rooftop PV is not feasible. So community-based renewables allows all customers to have access to the benefits of renewable energy and the cheaper pricing, hopefully, as those prices continue to be cost competitive, if not better than oil and and diesel, as those are subject to commodity pricing and volatility in the market. So, wow, HECO and the PUC have had to navigate a lot of really rapid change over about five years. It's been a remarkable transformation. But why do you think Hawaii wound up dealing with this influx of rooftop solar the way it did? I mean, is it well, just because it happened so suddenly, or well, was there resistance to no, doing planning? Or uh, No, I think, it, it, you know, in, in fairness to all the stakeholders, I mean, I think the customers realized the benefit. And once they realized it and the market responded with solar leasing companies and others that could provide opportunities to people, you didn't have to necessarily own your right. rooftop PV. You could lease it, you know, in a PPA arrangement with solar leasing companies. That really opened up the opportunity for a lot of people that would not have otherwise uh, considered that option, mm-hmm. which is not a bad thing. I think net energy metering and some of those programs in areas and states and jurisdictions where there is no solar or very little solar adoption, it's a good tool. And it did its job. It worked. Yeah. It did its job. It worked. But then when you have a robust and very advanced saturation level and you're moving to the next stage of sustainability, you do need to adjust the rate design to be able to sustain that so everybody can benefit. And I think what is a backdrop for us is the fact that everyone in Hawaii is committed. We are committed to the clean energy goals of Hawaii's Clean Energy Initiative. And people are willing to do their part from the customer side. We have high electricity costs, very high because we're isolated island grids and we are dependent on oil and diesel prices in the international spot market. So we are subject to the volatility of markets that we have no control over sometimes. And so it made sense from all those perspectives for people who could be early adopters to do that. And now for us, from a policy perspective, to make renewables sustainable, and whether that's distributed generation or other renewables that are available, 
But I do want to stress something because people just think rooftop PV. I think what's seminal about our state, and I've talked about it before, is that we issued in April of 2014 a very seminal white paper called The Inclinations on Waste Utility of the Future, where we laid out a roadmap of where we thought the Hawaii East utilities needed to go in what direction. We tried to give strategic guidance. And in that, we talked about distributed energy resources. And that just doesn't include distributed generation. It includes energy efficiency, demand response, and energy storage, including electric vehicles, as grid assets as part of the generation toolkit, which can be relied upon by the utility, and there would be certainty for cost recovery. And that was not the case at the time across the country. People were kind of wondering, where do these things fit? How can we put them into our resource planning? And we tried to clear the pathway for that so that not only the utilities, but third parties that were able to provide those kind of resources to the grid would have regulatory certainty. And I believe Wall Street also reacted favorably to that. To, here's a clear path, a strategic guidance to, to chart the course forward. Well, on that point, I mean, my objective here wasn't really so much to do a forensic examination of Hawaii's rooftop solar integration. So much of it was it was to try to find some useful insights for other state regulators and utilities who might very well find themselves in a similar position in the fairly near future, just recognizing that Hawaii has been at the cutting edge here. Yes. So what kind of insights do you think you oh, could share? Oh, I think the insights would be to make sure you know what the interconnection challenges will be to anticipate that. And we already mm. see that in California. Yeah. Location matters. Matters. Yeah. And to anticipate that in terms of either regulatory framework or pricing or time of use rates, in certain places there's a lot of need for solar. Other places where it's much more congested, and then evaluation of solar, those issues come up, and that's something that you know some of our other sister commissions have addressed. Trying to look at potentially unbundling the services because what is the issue when you get to higher saturation levels is do net energy metering customers fairly pay for the grid services that they take because you still are dependent on the grid right. no matter what. Uh, as There's the, the whole cost shifting right. argument. Right. And, yeah. yeah. And really rather than look at that, maybe we need to, you know, revise the way we give rates for billing. I mean, unbundling of services. And we address that in the inclination. So I think those are the things that people need to look at, unbundling the services and what the customers take as services from the utility. And right now, people don't see that, like all the grid services that are embedded in right. in your electric charge. Right. And also for those customers who are providing support to the grid and ancillary services to the grid, whether it's a capacity service or a direct energy to the grid, also need to be fairly compensated for the value of what they are giving to the utility. So we need to fine-tune that ability to unbundle services and properly measure that, especially as we go forward in the future where things become much more complex in the integrated grid of the future. So that is what I think other jurisdictions should take note of and be cognizant of because in order for it to be sustainable you want to make sure you don't raise unnecessary barriers but then you also facilitate the market as it matures Mm -hmm. uh, and there's more adoption. Mm -hmm. I understand that Hawaii has started getting pretty serious about electric vehicles which really makes a ton of sense because all the gasoline and diesel has to be imported at a very high cost and on an island range anxiety really shouldn't be a thing at least not an island of that size and because in the long run they could really all be powered with domestic renewable energy. So how is EV adoption coming along in Hawaii and what are your hopes or expectations for 
for it in the coming years. Well, I'm very positive about EV adoption. I think if you check the statistics that were published by the Department of Business and Economic Development Tourism Energy Office, and there is Energy Facts Hawaii uh, updated for 2016, if you go to DBED's uh, website, so I'd encourage the folks that are truly interested and want to get a deep dive on that to go there. But we actually, we're on par with California, even though California, because of the volume, there are larger number of EVs per capita, we are at the same place. And they call us second compared to California. But when you drill down on that, it's about 0.5% per capita, which is the same as California. Right. Because we have a smaller population of only about a little over a million people. As you correctly pointed out, there's less range anxiety, except for on the big island of Hawaii, where it's a lot larger geographic distance. But on Oahu, Kauai, Maui, you know, Molokai, Lanai, very small islands, there's no range anxiety. And yes, it is politically correct load to allow us to integrate more renewable energy. And it can (laughs) be... That's an interesting term, politically correct correct load. load. (laughs) And it, you know, especially if the power that is charging electric vehicles comes from renewables, with all the research that's being done now, and I know in California, San Diego Gas and Electric and PG&E are looking also at vehicle-to-grid EVs as a mobile storage capability. We've piloted some of that with some of our projects in Maui called the Jump Smart Maui Project and the Greater Maui Project, which was a, a partnership with international partners from Japan, Hitachi, uh, NIDO, which is the Energy Ministry of Japan, and financing entities from Japan, as well as EPRI, NREL, the Hawaii Natural Energy Institute from the University of Hawaii and, and the Hawaiian Electric Utility, Maui Electric, and customers. They volunteered to test some of this with EVs being part of controllable load and also being relied upon potentially for storage. And that's in its next phase of phase two of it. It completes in 2017, so hopefully we get the results of it. But it's very positive, and that's the integrated grid of the future because a lot of the customer-sided resources can be used to help support the grid, whether it's EVs or grid interactive water heaters or energy control systems on smart inverters for PV on rooftops or smart HVAC that can all be deployed as demand response on signal and especially with the direction that the investor-owned utility is going as well as KIUC. They're they're looking at uh, using more of the DERs as grid assets. Right, and you can use the electric vehicles to soak up the excess power for the overgeneration of wind in the night and solar in the day. Correct, because if we have workplace charging, then from 10 to 2 when people are just parking their cars in parking lots in uh, their workplaces, they can charge their electric vehicles. And now with the Energy Accelerator program testing some innovations from some creative people, there's mobile charging technologies that people are kind of like a a mobile cart that goes and charges your EV. It doesn't have to plug in. It can get a charge off of Second Life batteries and recharge your vehicle for, you know, as much as you want. So it's kind of like getting getting concierge charging service uh, (laughs) to your car while it sits there, you know. Right. That's very cool. You know, I hadn't really thought too much about Hawaii's wind power because all you ever hear about in the press is the the solar and the net metering issues. How much wind power does Hawaii have now and what's the technical or feasible potential for it? We have a large percentage of wind power on the system and we've had wind on some of our neighbor islands since early as like 2008, you know, wind farms on the big island. We have great capacity. I mean, 75 to 80% capacity wind farms. So these are big wind turbines that are generating a lot of electricity particularly the big island of Hawaii, gets a lot of its power from wind. There are also wind farms on Maui. 
and also on Oahu on the North Shore. So they generate a fair percentage of the electricity on those islands. Again, they're they're an intermittent renewable, so and uh, they primarily are more productive at night when there's less load. So we've got to balance out that system. But mm-hmm. there's quite a bit of wind on the system and. Kauai doesn't have any wind farms because of the impact to endangered birds and restrictions there because that island is a major nesting ground for a lot of seabirds and endangered species birds. So they don't do any big wind at all. Right, right. Okay. What's your long-term vision for Hawaii's grid at this point? I mean, do you have an idea of if or when it might be able to totally ditch fossil fuel generation and just rely on its own renewable resources? Well, as you know, there is that ambitious statutory goal set by the legislature for 100% renewable energy in the electric sector by 2045. And I think we all... It is ambitious. It's very ambitious, but we all think we can get there. And I think we're well on our way. I mean, I think the utilities are already at about 25% this year, but it's that extra 5% that's the hard, you know, the low-hanging fruit's been picked. So the extra 5% to get to 30% by 2020, which is the next benchmark. Both utilities, the investor-owned utility and the rural cooperative have agreed that they're going to try to exceed those goals. And they're trying to go 200% sooner with some of the islands, like I think Maui Electric saying they want to go 100% renewable on the small island of Molokai and trying different strategies, again, with technology and storage, distribution technology that harnesses certain reactive power and, and ancillary services in rooftop PV, and then looking at other potentials with either wind or storage, whether that's pump hydro storage or thermal storage or doing other things to make that possible to integrate renewables onto smaller island grids. So I'm very positive about it. I do believe that it is the integrated grid of the future. So grid infrastructure has to really be invested in, and that is smartening up the grid, making sure we use the best tools that are coming from the innovation companies and the distribution technology companies out of Silicon Valley and partnering that up with energy storage. And it can be simple energy storage. Like I said, it can be very basic thermal storage, grid interactive water heating, pump hydro, It doesn't have to just be battery storage, although all those technologies are moving forward. And and because of the California Public Utility Commission's orders and the the mandates in California, the price points are coming down because it's a competitive market to better develop the technology. And as that happens and there's more demand, the cost of the the battery storage technology is beginning to go down and become very cost effective. Mm -hmm. So as you can see, if, if KIUC can do a solar dispatchable facility on its island, at 14 cents a kilowatt hour for utility scale solar plus 52 megawatt battery to dispatch solar back into the grid from 5 to 9 p.m. at 14 cents, that's pretty cost competitive. Yeah. Well, that's really exciting. I mean, I've long said that when it comes to energy transition, as goes Hawaii, so goes the mainland. Well, electrons are electrons, Chris. So what we demonstrate in the living laboratory of Hawaii, and we encourage the utilities to make our grids available as living laboratories because applied research and demonstrating things helps to to make the case and uh, you know they do have responsibilities of reliability safety resiliency but if you can prove that out and then fully implement then that's the best of all outcomes and we have a lot of opportunities in Hawaii because of our smaller island grids we don't have an energy imbalance market so that's why everything has to balance within that little energy right. ecosystem right but a grid is a grid and and that's why our international partners 
partners from Okinawa, Japan, Korea are interested in what we do in Hawaii, and they've partnered with our utilities in terms of testing out certain technology, testing out certain concepts, and investing in our state to do that. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's a very hopeful and positive example, and it's uh, really exciting. So thanks a lot for coming on to the show to tell us about it. Thank you so much for having me, and I appreciate you having the show and making sure that the word gets out and to all your viewers. And I think that's an important part that important stakeholders like yourself, Chris, that you're there to educate people. And that's so important that people can make informed choices. There's so much disinformation out there about energy and about why clean energy is important and what it can do and why the path forward is so important for every individual customer to be engaged as a prosumer. So thank you for being part of that. (laughs) You bet. All right, cool. Thanks a lot. I hope you enjoyed this special free bonus episode of the Energy Transition Show, brought to you in collaboration with Rocky Mountain Institute, or RMI, a clean energy think and do tank based in Colorado. For more information about RMI's eLab and to learn how to get involved in its various events, see the link in the show notes. Enrollment for the next eLab Accelerator, a boot camp for electricity innovation, is open through January 13th, 2017. Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com and follow us on Twitter at Transition Show. Our theme music was by Mike Sugar and Mark Burnfield, who you can find online at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network.